You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello, everyone. I am your host today for Justice is Served. My name is Mari Fagel. I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Chelsea Galicia. Hi. Uh, Chelsea, I'm so happy to host this show with you. I have not done this show in about six months. I know. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be back in the studio. Um, I'm so excited to get your opinion on things because it's been so interesting having different hosts join me. Uh, we started out, when did we start this show? August of 2013, we started the show. Uh, it was Ebony Williams and me. Then it was Lonnie Carlston, Rawa Gebre Ab, and I'm so excited to have you on board, Chelsea. Thank you. Uh, it's always very interesting with this show where our opinions lie because legal news stories, as you know, we cover the latest in legal news, entertainment legal news, political legal news, anything in the headlines. Uh, it's always very interesting to see where your opinions lie. So, um, and I got plenty of shy. them. Okay. I was gonna I'll say, try not to be. Yeah, Chelsea, don't be shy because I have plenty of them as well. Um, one case I'm going to start out with for case of the week that has not been short of controversy. And this is really more than a case of the week. It's the topic of the week. It's the topic of the last couple months, to be honest. Uh, the fallout of what's been going on with Eric Garner and Michael Brown. The reason why, when I was creating the rundown for this show, I wanted to talk about this is it was so hard to um, sit back and not have a platform to say anything when the um, Michael Brown lack of indictment came out, when the Eric Garner lack of indictment came out in November and in December. And so I just held my breath and said, you know what, when I'm back on this show in January, I'm going to let it loose because I have a lot of opinions about this. I was working for the district of attorney's office the last six months uh wonderful experience gave me a lot of insight into a lot of these issues so chelsea i don't want to look back to the last year of 2014 it's a new year we're two weeks in do you think what happened with eric garner what happened with michael brown the riots the protests um are we going to move forward this year are we going to see more of the same or are we going to have learned lessons from these two incidents? Well, I think we're about to find out when we see how uh, Cleveland handles the uh, Tamir Rice killing. So if you'll recall that this is a case where a 12-year-old boy was playing with a, a fake gun in a park. Um, apparently, and I just saw the dispatcher's um, recollection of how it went down, uh, somebody called in and reported that it was a child playing with what looked like to be a fake gun. But when the dispatcher told it to police, they left out the detail about that this was a kid and this was probably a fake gun. So police arrived on scene and within a minute shot him dead. And then his 14-year-old sister runs towards him and they handcuff her and throw her in the back of a cop car. Um, so really another tragic case and we're left to see what um, they're going to do about it. So I think that that will help set the tone of the year and it'll be just one more case like 2014 or things will start to turn around in 2015. Here's my big question with that case. 
we have video of what happened. You would have thought with Eric Garner and the grand jury in Staten Island, because there was video of what happened, I personally would have thought the outcome in the grand jury would have been different. Regardless of what the attorneys and what the DAs were presenting to the grand jury, I thought the video alone would have led to a different outcome. Michael Brown, there was no video. There was an outcry after that, that police should be wearing body cameras. Uh, You know, there... Uh, Eric Arcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, just rolled out a $10 million plan to have all of LAPD wearing body cameras. And the idea is, if you get it on video, then it's a lot easier for a jury to decide, or grand jury, whoever, a jury at trial, to decide whether it was excessive force or not, whether it rose to the level of murder or not. So do you think the fact that Tamir Rice, uh, his killing, was on video, captured by video surveillance, is that going to make a difference? I wish I I felt confident that it would, but I I don't know. Especially if the grand if there's a grand jury one, and if it's anything like how Bob McCullough ran the grand jury in the Eric Gardner case, uh, I'm not sure if you heard his radio interview where he acknowledged that he allowed witnesses to go before the grand jury who. The FBI had already determined were not credible. In fact, one woman tried to say that, um, you know, he charged the police. Well, the only problem is, is there was an apartment building in between where she was and where the scene of the killing took place. So they allowed everyone to go up there. I mean, he, he freely says it. We allowed anybody who claimed to know anything to go up there and left it to the grand jury to decide what was credible and what wasn't. But anybody knows, any rookie legal person, if you create confusion, you're going to get a no. And that's what happened. He wanted a no. That's why. I mean, there there is a saying for a reason that a grand jury, you can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich because you can. The grand jury will always go the way that the DA wants the grand jury to go. And, you know, it was interesting, uh, having worked in the DA's office the last six months, the choice between whether you decide to pursue a grand jury or you decide to charge them and then pursue a preliminary hearing and have a judge decide whether there's enough evidence to move forward or not. Um, and... The sense I got, there's a couple reasons to do a grand jury. One is it's a lot quicker and easier than a preliminary hearing. Um, The other reason is to shift the burden off of the district attorney of saying, you know, it's up to you whether you're going to file charges or not, and to shift the burden onto the public. And that is a very powerful tool, uh, and that's why they use the grand jury for for a lot of cases. It was interesting... um, one particular um, case came to the attention of the Los Angeles County DA's office in the fall. Uh, a woman had shot her husband dead, and the idea was: Are they? Are, is the DA going to seek charges against her or not for murder? It turns out there's a lot more to the story. I'm not going to say the details, um, but the and who it involved. But it turns out there was a lot more to the story, and there was domestic abuse involved, and it looked a lot more like a self-defense killing. But the DA's office didn't want to be the one responsible for saying we're not going to seek charges against this woman. So they most likely are going to take it to the grand jury, so that when the grand jury says no charges, it's there to blame instead of the DA's yeah. office. I think McCullough knew what he was doing. He says in the interview it wasn't his job to get an indictment. It was his job to find ju- justice. But, you know, he even said he treated this case different 
he he told everyone this is special. He did things differently, and I think he created enough confusion to cause the non-indictment. Um, a lot of people have been really gutted by what that means about our justice system. So we'll see if that happens again. I, I, I wish I could. Uh, I don't know. Somebody restore my faith in humanity. Come on. It'll take one grand jury. Um, or it'll take, instead of a grand jury, a different process of just going out and charging them, DA's office and prosecutors not being afraid to charge, and then going to- straight to a preliminary hearing. And that's what we saw uh, most recently in New Mexico. The uh, DA in New Mexico, there was a shooting in um, April of last year. Two cops shot and killed a homeless man. He had spent the night before at a shelter, just got out of the shelter, and was um, sleeping in this like camping area in these hills, which is not allowed in that area. And uh, the cops shot and killed this homeless man. He had two camping knives on him, but he had his back turned. Want to know the reason we know why? On camera, yet again, the dash cam caught everything. The New Mexico DA, instead of going through this secret, clouded process of the grand jury where you don't know exactly what went down, she just went through, charged the cops, and now it's going to a preliminary hearing. And I think that's the way it should be done. It's much more transparent. Yes. And then let's hope that this maybe doesn't turn out like a Trayvon Martin where it seems like, okay, we got a trial, jury, and then you're just floored by the result. So I can't wait to talk about George Zimmerman a little later. Uh, George Zimmerman, how, okay, we used to have a count on the show for every time Justin Bieber or Chris Bound made a, one of our stories because it was just so often. I think we need to start a George Zimmerman count of how often he appears in our show because that guy cannot sit quiet. But we'll get to that in On the Docket. Um, I want to talk to you uh, about one last issue in have we learned anything since Garner? Have we learned anything since Michael Brown? And that's the idea of um, the body cameras. Like I said, uh, Eric Garcetti is rolling out a program to have, by 2016, all of Los Angeles Police Department wear body cameras, and now they're trying to figure out the rules and regulations behind the policy. So there's actually meetings going on today with the community as to what the rules are going to be. And I thought some of the questions are very interesting. One of them was, when should police be um, allowed to turn on or off the camera? Shouldn't it be running all the time? Because wouldn't they turn it off right when they knew that they did something wrong or right before? Yeah, let's not not have, you know, human decision about when is a good time and not. No, I I think that there maybe could be a policy about um, when tapes are released to the public. But I think um, that it should always be running. And besides the fact of it always be running, the other issue was whether the police would be allowed to review the tape before any sort of investigation, before anyone talked to them. The problem with that is they'll review the tape and they will tailor their story of what happened to match up with the tape. Yeah. Like why? No, you, you don't give criminals the benefit of that doubt. Right. No. I, I I can't see how that's going to help with transparency and uh, restoring the public's faith in the police. So um, we talked about a lot of issues. I'm sure these same issues we're going to be talking about on this show often. Like we said, the Tamir Rice um, case is going to be handled. We'll see the outcome of that. We'll probably be talking about that again in this show. And I think the idea of excessive force, police brutality, uh White cop versus black, unarmed man, teenager, child, whatever it is. These are not topics. Um, these are topics that we are going to be talking about a lot in this show. Yeah. So thank you for, for your input on that. Thank you. 
All right. So shall we begin our On the Docket series? Uh, let's start with... What did I? Oh, ha ha. Gosh, this charmer. Okay. Aaron. You Hern- could call him a charmer. <laughs> All right. So Aaron Hernandez is, uh, his trial is getting underway. Let me remind you which murder trial this is about. Oh, because the man is facing two. Two. Yeah. So, uh, the other one is about a drive by shooting where he's accused of literally being the one who put the gun pointed the gun at the other car and killed two people. Because of a spilled drink in a club. Yeah. So uh, this one is uh, he's being uh, accused of murder because he orchestrated the murder of his own friend, Odin Lloyd. He and two other friends picked up the victim, apparently took him to some industrial park, and he was shot dead. Uh, I don't believe the prosecutors know which one actually pulled the trigger, but they are saying that Hernandez was the one who orchestrated it. So we are now in the process of jury selection in that case, and a thousand potential jurors are going through the process right now. They're filling out right now, probably as we speak, a 51-question um questionnaire that asks them basic background stuff and also things like, do you have problems with tattoos? Do you um, have any biases against Hispanics or blacks because Hernandez is Hispanic and the victim was black? Uh, are you a New England Patriots fan? Um, questions like this. So what are the, um, the attorneys looking for in terms of who they want to toss out of this jury pool to end up with their 18, 12 jurors and eight and six alternates. I think because this case has been um, heavily covered by the media, not only nationally, but also locally within the Boston area, both sides are going to be looking for a blank slate. When a case is that high profile, it's very hard to find someone who hasn't heard anything about the case, but they're looking for someone who has not formed an opinion yet about the case. And sometimes people don't even know that they've formed an opinion until they're asked more probing questions. So I think they're looking, I I don't think they're going to be able to find someone in that area among that jury pool who hasn't heard anything about Aaron Hernandez unless they've been living under a rock. But I think they will find people who heard about it here and there, but are going in with an open mind. Yeah, I think they're looking for anybody who Who's not really into football? Those are probably the people who. Do you are really not- think even if someone is a huge New England Patriots fan that they're going to decide? Oh, I don't think that person's guilty just because. I mean, OJ. <laughs> It's a different thing, but I don't think just because someone really loved USC football or whatever he played on, Stephen, you can help me out here. Something. <laughs> you can the, tell the, I'm not a big sports fan. He was Buffalo at SC Bills. and then Broncos. That, yeah. Or no, maybe it was a Bronco that he fled in, and that's where that oh, name is coming from. that's where the from. Broncos reference comes in. Anyways, okay. I know he played <laughs> USC football. He won the Heisman for that. Um, I don't think because he played for a certain team, people are like – more likely to believe he's innocent. Well, I think that if you're a football fan and you're watching ESPN and the news outlets that cover it more, the interesting thing on the questionnaire was it asked the potential jurors, have you heard about this in the media? Then it broke it down by television, Mm -hmm. internet, social media, and it had every station channel listed there and they want potential jurors to mark off which station they got their news from, everything from TMZ to 
New York Times to, you know, radio stations. I mean, everything. I would want to know because I would want to know what source. If this person is a Fox News watcher (laughs) versus a CNN watcher, that's telling right there. Yeah, I just don't know. I mean, that one would be very obvious. But there was other ones that I'm like, I I don't remember where I got all of this. If you're if you're reading a more opinionated version of a blog about the story, you know, I would want to know. I would want to know. I just don't know uh, most people if they sometimes know where they heard some stuff, unless they're pretty devoted to certain outlets. I'm generally pr- pretty devoted to certain outlets, so um, <laughs> I won't say so that you won't judge me on the show, that <laughs> but um, I'm pretty devoted to certain outlets, and you know, I think that that changes a little bit the way I see a story. All right. So we'll we'll keep you posted on what happens there. Next one up. So this one is a follow-up to the UVA case that we covered last year. Can you believe that? Although it was just really a month ago. But uh, this one was the case of a woman that the Rolling Stones article called Jackie, who um, shared a story about uh, attending a party at a fraternity house with this guy. She went upstairs with him, was in a dark room with a bunch of men, was sexually assaulted for hours, tells her friends. Some cared, some were indifferent, but then claims that the school itself was very indifferent and callous and um, tells about this experience pretty in-depth and also that it happens to a number of other people. And then reports come out that the story could be inaccurate. It accuses the um, the the author of the article of not getting both sides of the story. Um, then there was, you know, things coming out like, oh, that fraternity did, didn't host a social event that was officially in their calendar. I don't know what kind of defense that is. But there's were certain red flags raised about the credibility of this woman's story. So while they're investigating, um, the school, the University of Virginia, has decided to reinstate the fraternity, FISI. Um, what do you think? Is that a good call? Yes, because I think that was an incredibly irresponsible piece of journalism. And you said she maybe didn't get both sides. She did not get both sides. She got one side. Not only one side, she got one source, believed one woman, one young girl's story, failed to interview the friends, failed to interview fraternity members, failed to even track down the supposed guy that she makes reference to, that Jackie makes reference to. Um, I thought it was a very irresponsible piece of journalism. I think that the school um, handled it appropriately in, you know, the wake of the story coming out. They took the fraternity off you know, off fraternity row while they investigated. But that's not fair to keep them off when it came out that that story is false and inaccurate and the woman exaggerated. And, you know, the police did their own investigation and the school only reinstated the fraternity once the police concluded that the attack that the that Jackie alleges didn't happen. And so um, for me as a former journalist, I'm just shocked that this went through all of the fact-checking mechanisms at Rolling Stone and actually got to publish. I mean, just because a girl is a rape victim, and I understand you have to handle rape victims more sensitively, any victim of crime more sensitively as a reporter, that doesn't mean that you believe their story point blank, no questions asked. I understand, you know, the girl said, oh, I really don't want you to interview my accuser. Right. Fine, interview the friends, do a little bit of fact checking before you publish well, a piece Well, we did like talk that. about this, about is all journalism supposed to be 
you know, get both sides? Or is some journalism, I'm sharing one person's story from their perspective? Or is that only allowed when you're not accusing somebody of something like rape? Yeah, when you're not accusing someone of any sort of crime. And that's more, I think as a journalist should always get both sides. It, it would be different if Jackie wrote a self-published piece of her own story. But as a reporter writing about, you know, the phenomenon on college campuses of rape victims being ignored, she really hurt the cause in the end. Because guess what? The whole problem with the college campuses in the first place was victim blaming and shifting the blame onto them and people not believing them. So this story did such a disservice to the cause that I think the reporter was trying to promote that she's brought us back she tried to go a step forward she brought us two steps back oh ouch i you might be right i mean I, I and i wouldn't be surprised if there's a defamation suit that is going to be set on rolling stone's desk any day now but against who specifically um from on on the ba- from the fraternity from the school the school definitely from the fraternity that fraternity's name is completely been you know shamed <laughs> well they were it was accused that that's where the gentleman came from, but I'm not sure how... The fact that a fraternity hosted a party where eight different individuals from a fraternity gang-raped a woman? Yeah, this, the, that's rough. And I, and I, I, I'm not saying a defamation suit would be successful because okay. there's a very high standard, but I'm saying I wouldn't be surprised if it was filed. Yeah, I, I do um, hope that the... This the the issue that the story was trying to highlight still gets attention, and that the school does take a look at its procedures for handling it, and that it does do something to change the culture of the handling of these kind of cases. But unfortunately, you might be right about the harm that it's done. But we shall see. Okay, now one of our favorite guys, okay, and I let's say just that start so start. I say so sarcastically, <laughs> favorite guys, because I don't want anybody to think that I was remotely possibly being serious about that. But yes, here we have arrived at the time that we get to talk about the other charmer, George Zimmerman. Okay, this is number one for the year, George Zimmerman. We'll keep a count. Okay, great. Number okay. one for the year. Probably right. number 15 for all of our shows. I normally don't want to read anything, but there's just been too many... Um, problems that he's had with the law minus the minor killing of a child problem um so over the last decade or so he's had a lot of issues with the law domestic violence assaults things like that and recently had another one in florida where he's accused of throwing a bottle of wine at his girlfriend but his attorney comes out on his behalf and says he's just not lucky in love the ladies are not good to him so the um yeah, so he's gotten a number of domestic violence allegations. Let's let's highlight a few of them. 2005, an ex-fiance filed a restraining order against him. Well, he actually filed one against her, too, because they were both violent towards each other. September 2013, then-wife Shelley Zimmerman claimed that he threatened her family with a gun. Then she recanted that story, um, or at least decided not to press charges. In December of that same year, God, he's got a lot of relationships, Samantha... I don't even want to butcher her last name, but his girlfriend at the time uh, told officials that Zimmerman pointed a shotgun at her face, not cool, and smashed her coffee table. She later recanted that. Um, And then in this more recent story, Monday Zimmerman denied throwing the bottle at the woman or destroying her cell phone. He was just trying to keep her from getting into his home. So I know that... um, 
we're lawyers and not therapists. But I'm not quite a lawyer yet, but thank you. <laughs> sorry. I promoted you. I have faith. Um, let's pretend to be therapists for a while. What kind of dating relationship advice would you give Mr. Zimmerman that might also help his legal issues? Um, I'd rather give all women on the planet dating and relationship advice to avoid George Zimmerman at all costs and to never date him. Listen, I tell my friends who are going through a divorce, don't maybe date quite yet. Maybe, you know, can get out there, but don't seriously date. This is, you need to process this big thing that you're going through. And I guess I've never thought I'd have to give any woman this advice, but if a guy you're dating has just killed someone... Give allegedly, co- he was acquitted. No, no. Well, he, it's, he it's, killed someone. He killed somebody. But allegedly murder. Whether so, or not it was called, it, it was murder or not was what the jury d- decided it but was yeah, not. He did kill someone. But whatever it is, he killed somebody. He ended somebody's life. Um, that's got to take some time to process. You got to, I, I would think that a healthy human being would have to go through a lot of therapy or a lot of inner work, spiritual work, something to really process this. I think this string of relationships is a distraction, um, probably from other deep seated things because he's been on this kind of violent rant for a long time. So, Besides ladies, stay away. Anything else that you would recommend to him? I think he is a very aggressive person. The fact, the whatever you want to believe about what happened that night with Trayvon Martin, the fact that he, you know, was this, you know, private patrol person who had a gun, who decided it was his job to do the do the job of the police and get involved and shoot and kill someone. Um, the fact that he has had so many instances of domestic violence. Yes, women have recanted where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, I just don't understand why he can't just crawl behind a rock and hide and we never hear from him again. Casey Anthony, right. notorious but at least she's done us the favor of never coming back in the news again. I mean, here and there, but not like George Zimmerman. Yeah, I don't, know. I don't know. I think um, he's got a couple of things. There's maybe like a God complex here, you know, now he, that he can take people off of this earth without facing much of a repercussion. Um, clearly anger. Clearly, I, I, th- I think here's the truth. I'm not really a therapist, but if um, – if uh, Pat Allen was on the show, he, she would say he's not a real man. He doesn't protect and cherish uh, women, children, and the uh, and the planet. He thinks everything is there to serve him. Apparently, there isn't any um, good justification for this repeated aggression. And uh, clearly, he's got some issues to address. And if he doesn't do it on his own, the legal justice system might do it. I don't, but I don't know. He's going to get anger management. I'm just hoping his acts finally catch up to him. Just like OJ Simpson. Uh, I <laughs> yeah. almost didn't want to say it, but no, yeah. let's say it. Just like OJ Simpson got what he deserved, although not behind bars for murder, double murder at that, but behind bars for, you robbery. know, robbery, yeah. um, and burglary. Uh, he, he got, he got what he deserved. Yeah, I mean, and I, let's wait for George Zimmerman to get what he deserves. Yeah, I mean, it'll, ho- let's hope that nobody gets hurt. In the case that causes George Zimmerman to uh, finally see some jail time. Um, but ladies, watch out. All right. Uh, let's move on to this lawyer, Dad, that I feel kind of bad for. 
Okay, that's why I'm happy. To, that's why I love having different hosts come in because you and I are definitely going to have a differing of opinions. On okay, this story. here's what happened with this guy. So this guy is a lawyer from San Diego, and all he was trying to do was throw his beloved 18 year old daughter a birthday party, a mansion, Playboy Mansion themed party for her and her friends in the privacy of their own home. And at about 10.30 at night, um, he goes out to the driveway. There's a police officer, I believe it's somebody from the sheriff's department, said, what's going on? And the sheriff said, we got complaints from a neighbor about an underage person drinking in the street. They start to move towards his home. He says, you don't have permission to go in. He says, I have a Fourth Amendment right. They cuff him and tell him to learn the law better. Uh, and they eventually um, take him to jail, although he says he was constantly told he was not being arrested and he was never Mirandized, or in other words, never told you the right to remain silent and that whole thing. Uh, spent the night in jail and got released on $200 bail. Um, he doesn't know what he allegedly did wrong. There have been no charges filed. But in the inventory sheet, it mentions some um, – a code section about uh, underage minors drinking in a home and that you have an obligation to take reasonable every reasonable step possible to prevent underage drinking, which um, he said he did and that there is no evidence that there was underage drinking. So apparently you're about to say that the police got this one right. Not that the police got this one right, but what was this guy thinking? Any father, let alone a lawyer, throwing an 18th birthday party that is Playboy-themed where the invitation invites women to dress like bunnies and guys to dress like Chippendale dancers is inviting trouble. And if, God forbid, any of those teenagers had gotten into a car drunk, you know, gotten into a car and then got into a car accident, that lawyer's life would be over because there's certain laws, social host laws, you know, if he was providing alcohol, even if he wasn't providing alcohol, but he wasn't taking reasonable steps to ensure that there was no alcohol, when a 200-person party that's Playboy-themed 18-year-olds that you're dealing with, unless they had someone checking at the door, breathalyzing, making sure that who was the DD, he invited himself to a lot of trouble, and he's just lucky that no one got hurt because that would have ended his career. And, you know, my parents always said to me when I was in high school, like, they, they, they just didn't want me to throw parties because it puts a lot of liability and risk on the parents in case, God forbid, a teenager got in a car and did something stupid if they were drinking. Well, maybe I have some empathy for this guy because it was a lot like my father. My father is also an attorney, and he uh, allowed us to – uh, hang out at, at at home, and that was because he didn't want me on the street. He gave me like a curfew of like 10 p.m. And so, in order to keep me from hating him for killing my social life, he allowed me to have friends over. He and my mom would be, you know, home. They'd come out and say hi. Um, but he would have rather that we were under his roof, safe, rather than running around. That's fine, and- but he took steps to ensure that you were safe. Well, that you and your friends were safe. But then I see here that this, you know, father, rather than, you know, he could have. So what What should he have done? Rented out a place? And then, listen, if it wasn't Playboy theme, the kids would have figured out some way to not wear that much clothing. 
There's nothing in that letter talking about the steps he took to ensure that kids weren't drinking, like having some sort of monitor at the door when people entered and when people left, checking bags. Uh, because if you're gonna have if you're gonna have it on your property, you need to take extra steps. But and at extra this point, it's not his job to convince us. At this point, the, I would want to see why did the police essentially arrest him, even. If they say that he didn't. What grounds? Because a, ki- a underage kid came stumbling out of a 200-person party hosted by him, clearly I, drunk. I I don't think that that's what, at least from his statement that he put out, the story was. The sheriff said a neighbor just saw an underage person drinking in the street. Didn't say he came out of this house. Didn't connect that person with his party at all. So. Uh, that's where I think. And then the Fourth Amendment issue about can you just go into somebody's house? Uh, answer is no, unless you have a warrant or probable cause. They didn't say what that was. I don't know what it would have been. Um, I don't know. I I, I, I I understand that he has a lot of defenses, and I don't know if he'll be charged with anything at all. Um, and if he were, I'm sure you would be able to fight it. I'm just saying be smart as a parent. And the fact that he would want to throw his 18-year-old daughter a Playboy-themed party that encourage the type of behavior that 18-year-olds are going to do anyways, I get it. But to encourage it and under your own roof, I don't know. I think we're judging the guy because of the Playboy thing. Like, okay, it's maybe a little tasteless, but I... I this is a guy I think who's trying to compromise with his daughter that he can that she can have something that's that's fun. Listen, they were going to find a reason to not wear much clothing anyway. Let's just but don't be real give it to them, and don't then give them clothing suggestions like, "Oh, dance like a Chippendale dancer." But I, I don't know if he was the one who came up with the invitations. I'm pretty sure it was her, especially because the invitation says, "Hey guys, my parents are going to be there. Please be on your best behavior. They will have no shame in kicking anybody out if you don't behave." So. I don't know. I feel bad for the guy. Uh, I don't really. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, um, just to finish up, in tipping the scales this week, I want to talk about an issue that I have just been talking to everyone at the dinner table about the last couple weeks. Um, So I'm curious to get your opinion on it. Tipping the scales is our our segment where we like to get people's opinions. So please tweet us. uh, Let us know your thoughts on this. Are law schools nowadays being overly sensitive to controversial topics in the news uh, and how they handle their students. Um, I'm going to talk from personal experience. I go to UCLA Law School. After Eric Garner and Michael Brown, we just started the show talking about this. There's nothing wrong with talking about it and sharing your opinion on a subject. Um, After those two controversies broke out, two things happened at UCLA. Um, The school sent out an email saying to the effect, if you are too emotionally distressed by what's been going on with Eric Garner and Michael Brown, you can coordinate a way to postpone your finals. Columbia Law School did the same thing, sent out a very similar email along the lines of, if you're too emotionally upset by what's been going on in the news, you can arrange a way to take your finals later because, um, you know, Michael Brown happened right around Thanksgiving time. Uh, Eric Garner happened, what, 10 days later, and that's around the time of law school finals. So first, when I got that email, 
are, they're training us to be lawyers. They're training us to handle difficult topics, um, especially if you're going to go into criminal law. In civil law, too, you're going to deal with controversial topics, and you're going to have a lot of stress and a lot of pressure. And the fact that they're coddling us and saying, if you want to not take your finals because of what's been going on in the news was outrageous to me. Then it got even worse, and this is where I couldn't sit quiet. Because you could stay quiet about the first thing. <laughs> My, no, I forwarded that email to a lot of different people because I was shocked by it. I had, you know, I've liked some professors at UCLA, but there was one professor in particular that I liked, and I took his class both times, or two different classes of his. I had constitutional law with a professor. His name's Robert Goldstein. Then um, First Amendment law, I decided to take that class again with Robert Goldstein because I enjoyed my first class with him. I took First Amendment law with him um, in the fall, last fall, and this fall he taught the class again, and he put a question on his final exam. I'm going to read um, the exact prompt of the question. He said... Write a memorandum for District Attorney Robert McCulloch on the constitutional merits of indicting Michael Brown's stepfather for advocating illegal activity when he yelled, burn this bitch down, after McCulloch announced the grand, the grand jury's decision. So he basically had a prompt. The whole class, his First Amendment class, and any First Amendment class, talks a lot about at what level your speech um, becomes a crime and what defenses you have to that. Uh, so I he took a subject that was in the news and made it the prompt for an essay question. Students afterwards were apparently outraged by it to the point that he had to apologize, take that exam question off of the exam when he grades it, and the dean had to apologize on his behalf. Um, the dean said, Professor Goldstein intended question one in the exam to be a topical examination of the clear and present danger defense. In retrospect, however, he understands that the question was ill-timed for the exam and could have been problematic for students given the anguish among many in our community over the grand jury decisions in the Michael Brown and Eric Garner cases. As a result, he has communicated his regrets to the class and will be adjusting the grading appropriately for all students who took the exam. Professor Goldstein said, question one involved a brief actual news report from CNN and the New York Times. The purpose was to consider the clear and present danger test as a First Amendment defense against prosecution for speech itself rather than illegal action. And the effort of the court to give breathing space to political actors to engage in hyperbole in the heat of the political moment. As with many of my exams in this upper level elective class, questions may be drawn from current legal issues in the news or from recent court reports. This helps make the exam educational and relevant. Throughout the course, we've explored controversial, deeply felt issues involving many different minority voices and victims. The province of a First Amendment lawyer is controversial. I recognize, though, that the recent disturbing events and subsequent decisions in Ferguson and New York make this subject too too raw to make it a useful opportunity for many of you to demonstrate with you what you've learned in this class this year. Um, you want to know what I'm reading these two statements from? And above the law blog, above the law covers uh, news about law schools that basically called Professor Goldstein a racist. Uh, they had many unkind words for him for even putting this question on the exam. I personally think that he's not advocating for one side or the other. The point of a law school exam is you're supposed to write you know, the arguments for and the arguments against. Uh, just the fact, just just because he was writing in a, he 
framed it as a memo to the district attorney's office doesn't mean he was trying to say one thing or the other. It's your job as a law student to present both views and both sides and weigh the arguments. And I just think it's so ironic that in a First Amendment class of all classes, this professor had to censor himself and his subject matter. And I think people are becoming way too sensitive about issues. I understand that it's controversial, but the point of law school is to engage in debate and not... I'm, I'm getting the sense on my campus and on many law school campuses, many undergraduate school campuses, that people feel so strongly about an issue that if anyone else disagrees with them, they try to silence them. That's how I feel. Oh, I don't know about that. And I haven't been on a campus in a, in a while. Um, so I couldn't speak to that. But I, I get it. They're trying to train us to be, you know, competent lawyers, except... I, I do feel for people when you – some people go to law school thinking that they're really going to be participating in a legal justice system. And people really take that to heart to be a part of this system. I mean it is a lot of time, money, energy, stress, sweat, tears to go through the process of becoming a lawyer. And from personal experience, when you are, once you're – Something happens and you're totally disillusioned and let down by the system. It, it, it's a little earth shaking to you. Like the foundation of what you thought you were joining and signing up for and, and being trained to be a part of completely starts to get shaky. For me, uh, when I was a first year attorney, I was set for trial in front of a judge and all day she was delaying. Then at four o'clock in the afternoon, she decides to take the count, the trial off calendar because I swear I'm not making this up. She said she didn't know how to rate the case and she refused to instruct the raters to rate it following certain instructions. So she told me that she was basically lazy and incompetent and took my trial off calendar and then, you know, my client sitting there without benefits and it floored me so much that there could be that level of incompetence and laziness in this system that I had just spent so many years trying to learn and become a part of. And and that's what happens. I, I literally went away to Costa Rica for a month because I, like, what the heck am I doing all this for? If this is the system that I'm about to join. So I, I understand that for some people, it isn't even just about the case. It's about your faith in the justice system and what you are joining. Now, at some point, it does become a little bit too much and it does cross over into coddling. Where that line is, I don't know. But to accuse this professor of being racist is a little extreme. I, I think that Law school professors have a tough job of coming up with creative question prompts to get, you know, some juicy response from students that's going to um, not just bring up one topic that was discussed in class, but like a, a lot of different defenses and claims and charges and that there's a lot of discussion and there's a lot of meat to the question. And that's probably what he was going for. I... I wish he would have – I wonder if the response would have been the same if he was uh, – it was the memo to the other side. 
yeah, that's why it, it shouldn't be any different if it was a memo to a public defender or to a district attorney. He's not advocating for prosecution. He's saying weigh the strengths and weaknesses of prosecuting or not. It could be flipped, weigh the strengths and weaknesses of our defense to it if he was charged with it. And I think that would have led to an even more uproar. And I just want to read part of this blog because it really outraged me. Um, this particular question places an unfair burden on African-American students to emotionally detach from still recent acts of essentially legalized terrorism against the African-American community. Can it be done? Sure, I guess. Should it be required as part of taking a test? Absolutely not. Goldstein is testing non-white students in his class differently than others. He's challenging his minority students to deal with an issue that his white students don't necessarily have to care about. He's calling this professor a racist because he put a certain question on exam. In all constitutional law classes, you deal with controversial topics of um, right the right to gay marriage, abortion. We were tested on a lot of these subjects in our first constitutional law class. And in First Amendment, you're dealing with a lot of the same issues of free speech and uh, religion and religious freedom. It's a controversial class by nature. And the fact that some students are too sensitive to write about a subject, I... I just think that what kind of lawyers are we training here? Well, I I, I don't know. What if it was a uh, a prompt about um, the UVA rape case? You know, and a rape victim took the exam. I you know the, they talked about that in in some of the articles covering this. I think that there have been situations where rape victims have then gone to law school because they want to make a difference in the system. So then they should. You have to be able to talk about these controversial issues if you want to make a difference. And if you want to be a lawyer, you're going into a field where you're going to be asked to give your opinion and to advocate for someone on a certain issue. And so I just, I think that going to law school forces you to deal with more controversial topics and debate more controversial topics. And that's what law school is about. And you're supposed to create a safe environment and a safe space to do so. And if the reaction is just shutting down all argument and all debate on it, that's even worse because... In First Amendment class, you learn about the chilling effect. The whole point of the First Amendment is to stop any sort of chill and to protect free speech so that people aren't chilled from talking at all. Now that this professor has had to take this exam off of his, or this question off off of his exam, he and other professors at UCLA at any law school are going to think twice about what question they put on an exam, and I think that is an unfortunate consequence. I, I agree with you on that one. Well, <laughs> thank you so much. I know I was more riled up than usual. This is something involving my school personally, and I don't feel ashamed to be talking about UCLA poorly in this instance. Love the school. Great institution. Great classes. Great professors. Um, but I just I don't agree with the way that was handled. <laughs> so um, let me know your thoughts. Tweet me at Mari Fagel. At Chelsea Galicia. And Chelsea, thank you so much for joining me for this first show. I'm so excited to be back at Justice is Served. Thank you to our producer, Stephen. Um, and we have a lot more topics to talk about in the coming weeks. Like you said, Aaron Hernandez is going to be going to trial six to ten weeks. Bill Cosby's back in the news yet again. We have a lot to say on him. Uh, so be sure to stay tuned uh, and tweet us your opinions on any of these stories. Thank you so much and have a good week. From producers Maria Menounos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in.
The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.